podcast has bad words. <laughs> this is the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're here with Christopher Kelly from NourishBalanceThrive.com. Chris, during the break, we, between the minimal and the maximal, we took a quick break. And you said, I hope people don't think that I'm... Uh, trying to start a cult. <laughs> I hope you are trying to start a cult. <laughs> yeah, we were. This was like our initiation. I thought we were joining a right, cult today. Exactly. Ryan. Yeah, me too. No, of course. I mean, if I th- thought someone who was was trying to start a cult was, uh, uh, he, he wouldn't be a guest on the podcast for sure. <laughs> In fact, uh, because I uh, love and care about you, I would I would be like, well, wait a minute. Are you? Do you think maybe you're starting a cult here? Um, let's. Uh, Let's let's talk about that though. Let's extend the the sort of cult conversation here. Yeah. Uh, before, why why did that thought even pop into your head? It just doesn't sound good, does it? Like oh. cults never end well. Mm. Like n- it never ends well. But I don't know. I, I think it's that bias thing. I think maybe there most cults probably end well. Mm. <laughs> this is like a survivorship <laughs> bias. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they don't well, make the news, right? There are. I mean, what what defines a cult? Because. You know, uh, the religion that I grew up in is kind of a little bit of a cult, but because there are eight million members, like then it's now it's not a cult; it's, it's a acceptable cult, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but w- so do we know what separates like a religion like the one I grew up in mm-hmm. versus like an actual cult? Yeah, so so even both of those are perspectival, right? Because mm. some people call Scientology a religion. I'll call it a religion. It's fine. I don't yeah. mind calling it a religion. Yeah. But some people will call it a cult. Okay. Yeah. It might be. I, I don't know. Um, it sounds like based on what limited knowledge I have, it sounds like Scientology probably is a cult. Right. Do you know much about it? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've heard of Scientology, yeah. right, Chris? Okay. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but they have something like 25,000, 50,000 members, something like that. It's not a ton. Oh, really? That's it? I didn't realize that. But they own a ton of real estate. They're a very large real estate company Mm. uh, in Clearwater and in Hollywood. Yeah. And so Clearwater, Florida, Hollywood, California. And so, yeah, they are likely a cult. I mean, I think people, your religion that you grew up in, Jehovah's Witness, Mm. like a lot of people will refer to them as a cult. A lot of people refer to them as a religion. I think a lot of it has to do with like, what's the cost of leaving the organization? Like if there's a high cost, then that is associated with a cult. So for um, the religion I grew up with, if you leave, like my dad doesn't talk to me to this Mm. day because I left the religion. I live with a woman who I don't, I didn't get the government involved with. Um, yeah, and then you look at Scientology, it's the same thing. Like, there's a really high cost. To, if you can leave, like, it's a very high cost of leaving yeah. uh, Scientology. So, yeah, I, I think that's just one signifier. But, you know, I look at, uh, like, the David Koresh cult. I don't know what the cost was of leaving there. Maybe people could freely come and go. Yeah, pretty much no. You yeah. couldn't. You I, mean, couldn't. I mean, that's uh, been okay. true for religion since inception, right? They call that excommunication. Yeah, where right. You wouldn't get any business. It, you wouldn't get any help with anything. Like, and to that point, every religion started out as a cult. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it had to have, right? I, it, it seems that way. I yeah. mean, at a certain there was a tipping point where it was like, okay, now it's not a cult. It's now it's religion. Now it's acceptable. Right. Yeah. And so there's the I don't know. I so there are tipping points here. What you're talking about is religion and cults, but like what I was trying to get to on the minimal is like where does commune turn into cult? Because right. I think every cult has a commune not every commune is a cult right right although at some point because we chris Mm. we have this idea that 
Well, that's wrong. Anything besides the monogamous nuclear family is wrong. And we were even told by some folks that it's evil, mm. right? To, to, to live anywhere outside of this particular mm. extremely limited, constricted situation yep. is wrong and evil. Obviously, we're not saying that. But um, because we've been, we've been prescribed that, we look at, at the just a regular commune of th- look at your living situation, which is even a commune. Uh, it's a few people living on the same plot of land and right. sharing resources, right? Co housing or intentional living, you might say. Yeah. Or yeah. community. <gasps> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sensational. Right. Yeah. Mm. And so you have, you have this situation, but some people, even some people are going to be like, well, no, that's uh, that's the wrong way to do it. Mm. What? Why? I've never really had a lot of respect for authority, if I'm honest. And yeah. that sort of thing just doesn't bother me at all. I really don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I was saying in the lightning round. Like when you're living a genuine life, you don't really seek approval. other people's. Yeah. Other people's approval. Yeah. Right. And so why do we seek approval then? It's, um, be- mm. it's because we feel as though we need approval. Right. That we're. Yeah. Uh, we, we put other people on a pedestal over our own sort of needs even, right? Yeah. And I think the other problem, the sort of fallacy, is we think there is a, a right and wrong way to do things. Yeah. And as soon as we, we... It's like you wouldn't tell a kid there's a right way to climb a tree. Mm. Mm. You know, what, what did uh, Do- Dr. Damon Korb, when he was on the podcast, he said, he said uh, never lift a kid into a tree, but if they can climb the tree, let them climb as, hi- climb as high as they can get because mm. they can get their way down. Yeah. And um, I think whenever we prescribe something like that to a child, it all of a sudden limits everything about what they're about to do it limits all of these sort of exploration yeah and we've had we've put so many restraints on us as as adults that it feels like we can't go anywhere mm-hmm. and that's what i that's why i wanted to have you here today chris i, I feel that you you you're exploring yourself right it, it, you're exploring what it means to live in a community what does a community even mean in mm-hmm. today's modern context because we say community, but what we really mean is a bunch of individuals who happen to be placed in small boxes around the same vicinity, right? Right. Mm-hmm. That's not what you're talking about when you're talking about community. No, I think we're talking about a much deeper level of sharing than that. I think that, you know, the sharing goes down exponentially as you put space in between us. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, maybe one time I s- some friends were living with you know, they're giving their kid a bath and like one of them is melting down and they could really use a hand. And because I'm only in the next door, I can hear it. I can just walk through there and just grab one of the kids and remove them from that situation and just solve the problem. Mm-hmm. But if that person was living next door and there was, you know, bricks and mortar between us, then I never would have heard the kid to even know to go to do that, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think even like one layer of bricks is enough to make the sharing go down exponentially. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's so- interesting because even if you did hear it, and you went over to your neighbor to grab their kid. There's this crying kid. Yeah. <laughs> that still might even be a little strange because we have this imaginary boundary of, yeah. oh, now you're on my property. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and the property thing is simultaneously very real to us, but it's also a complete myth, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, it, it's, a, it's always been the sh- ownership has been the strangest thing for me to reconcile in, in general, especially with the whole minimalist thing because I'm not against ownership, but it does seem somewhat... 
against our human nature in, in many ways. When I say ownership, individual ownership, owning mm. a plot of land or even physical possessions. Mm. I hate when people touch my stuff, but I'm acculturated to hate that, right? Mm. Like I've spent the last 39 years thinking that, you know, this is my camera or this is my clock or this is my mirror or whatever. Mm. But, but, but why? Yeah. Because the truth is like, actually this isn't my mirror. Ryan and I own this together. We share it, right? You can have it. But <laughs> I don't want to have it. That's the point. Cause then you have to have a mirror as well. I'll just borrow yours. <laughs> Minimalism, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so when you're talking about sharing, what do you mean by sharing? Food is a big one. I think mm. that binds us together, the, you know, sharing food. It's yeah. just, just so much more efficient if you make one meal and everybody eats together. Mm. I think that's also a really important thing that bonds us as well. It's like that ability to share food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, like trying to prepare food for just your kids. I mean, it's, that's a lot of work. Everyone listening to this knows that. Going to the supermarket, buying food, preparing food, cooking, cleaning up. It's a huge deal, but yeah. there's yeah. an economy of scale there, you know, sharing that it just is so much easier. Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. reason we don't all have private roads that we drive on, right? Yeah. It's right. We, we share the roads. And it, you know, we, we pay taxes for that. Now you could obviously do a, that. You can do your own privatized system, but it would still all be sharing uh, mm -hmm. in a way. But there are times where it, makes, it doesn't make sense to share, right? So you have your own individual space, your own individual things. And I know you're very similar to Ryan and I in the respect that like, you, you don't have a sentimental attachment to any physical things really. Um, <laughs> you're nah. looking, he almost looks disgusted to even think <laughs> about it. Yeah, expand on it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you you nailed it when you said love people use things. Like, yeah, I mean, we got evacuated by fire last August in Santa uh -huh. Cruz. Yeah, fire enema. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say something about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we we took off in our VW Eurovan, and I distinctly remember a moment when. You know, I, I look back and I see my two kids and the dogs and, and that's it. You know, my wife's here, but I've got everything I need. It's like, let's get out of here. You know, like, I don't care if the, the house burns down. Yeah. And uh, with hindsight, I did care if the house burned down. It mm. didn't burn down, but mm. I've seen how difficult it's been for some of our neighbors to rebuild after a fire. It's just a total logistical nightmare. You know? yes. it, yeah. it's, it's a giant inconvenience, oh, it's but it's not... It, it, it doesn't mean anything yeah. in the sense that like you didn't lose the meaning you simply were and it's uh, we actually have a story of a couple in our new book uh, love people use things uh jason and jen kirkendall in, in i think minnesota and it was after one of our events they came up to us and just told us this story i won't run the whole thing because it's in the book but basically there was a fire and a lot of things burned and 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 so they actually went through your scenario, but a lot of stuff burned. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, they had been living intentionally. You know, they had embraced minimalism just a few months previous to that mm. and had a different perspective. Where if, if the fire had happened a year before, like I know if a fire would have happened to me at age 28, 11 years ago, I would have been devastated because I lost all the, the meaningful things. I, yeah. Well, things are only significant if we sort of impart a significance onto them. Mm. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that was sort of the attitude that I heard from most people was they were devastated to lose all their stuff, whereas I thought, well, I mean, the hardest thing for me about minimalism is that the work of getting rid of the stuff, you know, like I've got a shed full of 
every bike part I've ever owned since <laughs> 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, I never threw anything away. Yeah. And to go back there now and throw all that stuff away, it's a lot of work, right? I've got yeah. to spend the weekend boxing and taking all that shit to the dump, right? Like, yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to yeah. go ride my bike, yeah, right? And right. So it's Simple a lot of work. and easy. Like, whereas <laughs> if a fire comes and burns it all up, like it does a job for me. Right. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's, it's, it's been really hard for people. You know, I've seen a neighbor's place. They've, they've not broken ground, you know, like... Oh it basically looks the same as it did last August when it burned. And it's because you have to get all these environmental agencies in and it's this huge deal, oh like God. testing the soil and you can't just, you know, scrape it all clean with a backhoe and build a new house. It's a long involved yeah. process. So mm. I'm glad our house didn't burn. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm glad yours didn't too. It, 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 I'm glad anytime that I'm not in inconvenience or in this case, it'd be like the greatest inconvenience of your life probably. Mm. Um, but I also understand that like the the things that we have, you know, we Ryan and I even have a rule called the spontaneous combustion rule. When someone can't decide, you know, should I get rid of this clock here that's in my hand? And 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 this came Ryan had the idea like, well, would you feel if it's spontaneously combusted right now, would you feel relieved or would you feel sorrow? And if you'd feel relieved, then why not give yourself permission to go ahead and let it go? Mm. And, and I think that illuminates them, that, that sort of thought experiment. You kind of just did that with mm. your bike parts where you're like, I would feel relieved yeah, if that shed right. me a job. Yeah. <laughs> it, it would, I mean, the truth is you'd still have to spend time cleaning it up, yeah, but now you have to you'd be forced to clean it up, right? right. And that's, that's the difference. You, you would be forced into it. And, and so uh, the only difference is forcing yourself into it. Yeah. Uh, but I actually hear the same excuses all the time with... Um, it's it's funny how the the stuff then spreads over to other areas of life. So I'm sure you hear a lot of excuses about eating and you know, diet, exercise, you know, w- other things with respect to ancestral health. Mm. Why I have to be exposed to blue light at night or whatever, right? So you hear all of these sort of, yeah, but but I'm different, right? Um, I have to, uh, in I, I I have to do these things that conform to society. You have a lot of people come to you with problems that can be solved relatively easily with just some some small lifestyle changes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, simple but not necessarily easy, right? Changing yeah. behavior is very tricky. Yeah. Uh, for everyone including me. Yeah. But once you get it done and it becomes habitual, then it's very very easy. Yeah. We had an uh, article here. Uh, we have a more about less segment. We have this article about thruples. We had a question about thruples. Hmm. And it was, are there any successful long-term thruples? Now, a thruple is what exactly? Let's look this article up here. Sean, if you can put a link to this article. Do you want to read the definition on the article, or do you want to talk about what a Yeah, let's. (laughs) All right, cool. Let's take a look at the definition here in the article. All right. And it says, what exactly is a thruple? By the way, this is from Healthline. How to navigate your first thruple. What is a thruple? Taylor offers this definition. A thruple is a relationship between three people who have all unanimously uh, agreed to be in a romantic loving relationship together with the consent of all people involved okay so a consensual three person relationship uh, you may also hear it referred to as a three-way relationship a triad a closed triad is it the same thing as an open relationship nope technically an open relationship is a relationship that occurs between two people who have mutually agreed to open their relationship up to sex but not romance or love with other people if two folks in an open or closed relationship have sex together with a third person this is a threesome not a thruple <laughs> okay so 
talk about well unconventional living situations yeah you know, a i have a, we have a friend who was in a a bit of a thruple um and he and his his wife uh former wife now they um were in a a sort of marriage but they also had a a partner who didn't mm. live with them but was mm. also their partner so i, I yeah. think you could consider it a a thruple most likely yeah. and so i think what we're illustrating here as we move away from what is you know, ryan and i are both in you know, traditional monogamous relationships for the mm -hmm. most part it's non-standard in the sense that there's the paperwork might be different but otherwise it seems to be relatively similar bex is in my situation a bit different we're apart half the time mm -hmm. which works really well for us um in fact i would think it would make our our relationship a lot more difficult to be uh in a monogamous relationship if we were living together full time mm. uh because i don't know about you but with me being with in the same structure the same being proximity um sort of removes some of that that sexual desire in a way mm. being around someone all the time mm. yeah i would agree with that domestication mm. is one of the most challenging things you can do to a relationship right when you move in together and yeah that's that's challenging so yeah. let's talk about that uh, what the what you've been exploring with your sort of communal living mm. situation it's not a, a thruple situation it's not traditional monogamous relationship either what are you comfortable with discussing at this point uh, good question pretty much anything i think okay um well let, let's talk about so you have had you've tried the nuclear family yep and it worked for a while but was suboptimal is that fair Yes, I would agree, yeah. Because it's not like you were traumatizing your kids. You weren't traumatized by the experience. It just yeah. wasn't optimal. Yeah, so we started, so we opened up our relationship about a year ago. We worked with a, uh, a poly, poly is this other term that you'll hear quite a lot as well. Mm -hmm. A poly-friendly therapist. Her name is Anna Dow. Mm. Uh, she's in the Bay Area. She's fantastic. And we opened up our relationship. And the reason we did that was because, you know, somebody had asked me this difficult question which is so your community what will hold it together right so for all of human existence hunter gatherers the thing that held you together was you would die if you left right like to leave your tribe mm. and wander off into the wilderness there's no way you could survive alone so you had no choice you had to stay right but now you can just go when things get difficult you can say now screw this i don't like the way that you leave the sponge you know wet on the side of the sink i'm, mm. I'm off see mm. you goodbye i think that's a good reason to leave. that's a good reason <laughs> isn't it um you know, you keep leaving the toilet seat up. I'm out of here. Like, right. bye-bye. Yeah. Um, so the, the question then becomes, well, what will hold you together? And Julie, my wife and I, our best answer to that question was the same thing that held us together, love. Mm. And so we opened up our relationship for that reason. And then and there was another thing that actually one of my neighbors who's a yoga teacher, she's super good. She's like, well, how are you not, if you start living with a bunch of other adults all of reproductive age, how are you not just all start shagging each other? What, what are you going to do about adultery? Mm-hmm. And I think that was also a very valid question. Yes. And uh, the answer is you just decriminalize it. Yes. And I think right. you've done the same with your relationship we with have. Bex, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So we can talk about that here since it's on the Maxwell episode. But um, Bex and I have something we call cleft relationships. They talk about open relationships. Mm. Uh, it's like a closed open relationship. So monogamish is another term that might be appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that th that is a you know, uh, Dan Savage uh, term of monogamous, but... Yeah, in fact, I would even say it's a little bit different from that. Okay. Here's what I mean. We've, I love what you just said, decriminalized 
adultery. Right. Uh, we, we only have one stipulation. And so we are in a monogamous relationship. Uh, but if she wants to go have sex with someone else, that's fine. Let's just talk about it first. Mm. Uh, now, if you happen to be in a you know, situation where you can't talk about it first, it would just be inappropriate or whatever. Use your best judgment, but let's talk about it before we have sex again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously be safe. You know, they're, they're, you know, using protection, et cetera, um, was, has been part of that. Now, her and I have been together for six years now, and like we've been monogamous the whole time. And I think the reason that we've been monogamous the whole time, it's really helped that we spend enough time apart. Mm. And it makes our chemistry really great. It annoys the people around us. I, I did one of, so Bex has a podcast called How to Love, and I co-host with her. And you know, I have Sean in here this weekend uh, recording it. And um, yeah, I mean, I think what, what happens is you know, we're so affectionate with each other around other people. Like it could, it could almost be like, well, are these guys for real? And it's like, yeah, we're for real because we have so much time apart. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not prescribing that to anyone. I think my living situation would be horrible for Ryan. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think he would enjoy it at all. And so it may not be appropriate for the thing that's most appropriate for me is maybe detrimental to someone else's relationship, mm, right? Mm, mm. And so, yeah, we, we have a, a, what I call a cleft relationship where it's, it's uh, open, but let's, let's talk about it, mm-hmm, right? Mm. And um, that's proven to work really well for us because what it has really done is it's, it's decriminalized it in a way. And even if you were to decriminalize heroin today, I wouldn't start doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference for me. Mm. I'm not well I guess yeah sex can be a lot like heroin in terms of uh. the yeah the dopamine <laughs> etc but um uh, here, let me ask you a, a frank question here um the friend that I was talking about who of, of ours who was in a throuple mm-hmm. it destroyed both relationships for mm-hmm. them mm. and so quite often opening up a relationship I see this way more often than not it destroys relationships yeah. What did you do to prevent that from happening? Uh, well, I think working with a therapist was important. What I mean, did they help you th- understand? Um, well, so some of the things you've already talked about, communication, nonviolent communication, I think is an excellent framework that mm. people should understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg is, has the, the book on that. Yeah. And then Radical Candor, Kim Scott has a really good book on that. Uh, boundaries, um, super important. Mm-hmm. Mm. But, I mean, you have to remember that like half of all marriages end in divorce. Mm-hmm. And then if you've been divorced once, the chances are you'll get divorced again. So it's not like, you know, if you choose this other option, then you're guaranteed to live happily ever after. That is such but then a good also point. you get into, you know, something that I've thought about is like, we tend to define relationship success in terms of the duration. Like if you make it all the way until one partner dies, mm-hmm. then, then you're successful. Congratulations, you made it. Yes. But why, why does time, duration have to be that measure of success why it's can't a terrible you, measure yeah i mean why can't you have a two-week relationship that's successful i don't see why not no i agree with you in yeah. fact ryan uh, and i have talked about this in the past i've had a f- quite a few very successful relationships it's uh, what our friend rob bell talks about graduation versus divorce like sometimes mm-hmm. you can just graduate from a relationship mm-hmm. because it went great for two weeks or two years or two decades and now it's time to graduate from that because hanging on to it now would be clinging and clinging is always suffering, right? And so, so 
Um, I find that even holding the relationship, like my relationship with Bex, holding it loosely, not needing it, mm. uh, because we've been sold all these memes by pop, by, by pop culture, like you complete me, right? Or mm. uh, how absurd is that? Because yeah. I am complete, and, and therefore the people, any externality augments my life, enhances my life, or or gets in the way of my well-being as well. Yeah. If we are in the wrong relationship, mm-hmm. or if we're measuring things in in a way that um which isn't beneficial mm-hmm. i love that you bring up <laughs> this idea of like uh well com- comparing uh, maybe you weren't comparing but i started to compare throuples versus monogamous relationships uh you know married monogamous relationships and the divorce rate is 50 percent and I would love to see what the thruple <laughs> divorce rate is. I yeah. mean, is is our friend mm-hmm. an exception or are they the rule? Is it, you know, is it a 50-50 thing? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But it is funny how, you know, you could look at um, our friend mm-hmm. and people can say, oh, well, see, that's why that thing doesn't, that's why, you know, that thruple mm-hmm. thing doesn't work. Open relationships, it always ends up with someone being hurt. And whatever it is, and that's why you know marriage, and that's why monogamy is is so important to hold dear. But mm-hmm. when you look at the statistics, a lot of those relationships end up kind of uh, uh, broken up too. It's I, I think what happens is people's, especially thinking about our friend here. I think people's preferences, they always change. Like they're never, hardly hardly uh, you know, ten percent of my preferences today are like you know, uh, carry over from when I was 20 years old, mm-hmm. you know? So 20 years ago, like I had 90% different preferences. So I think that has a lot to do with this. Um, like with our friend whose relationship it's messed up. Everyone was consensual. Everyone was into it. Everyone mm-hmm. was very excited about it. And then something changed. Yeah. I think the, one of the other things that the change there is they had an intellectual understanding going into it an agreement sort of intellectually, mm-hmm. but didn't anticipate the the turmoil emotionally. Mm. Have you experienced any of that? Uh, yeah, definitely. You can get emotions come up really fast, but I'm a pretty low anxiety sort of person. And so it's been a pretty smooth ride for mm. me, perhaps less so for my wife, but she's doing great. She's doing great. Mm. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about some of those anxieties. What, how do they, how do they manifest? Well, so it's, it's really fear of rejection and abandonment, I think is probably the main one that people mm. deal with. Um, there's another good book actually that I should recommend. It's by Jessica Fern. It's called Polysecure. And she talks about how secure attachment in early life is important for later relationships. Uh, and and that, that's been super helpful, like understanding what it uh, requires to achieve secure attachment. And of course, it's important for kids. My kids all have secure attachment to mum and others as well. Hmm. I think mother has a prior, a privileged relationship with the kids and, and others can and should be important too yeah um so yeah my kids are they're both low on anxiety and they're low on avoidance as avoidance as well oh that's wonderful um those are the two axes that you normally think about when you're talking about secure attachment so how this plays out in real life is they're very happy to leave mum and explore the world right yeah. so when you drop them off from school there's no crying and creating and when they're reunited with mum it's all calm and there's no problem there either. Mm-hmm. And they're also very attracted to, to strangers. Like a stranger is like an opportunity to, to gain another caregiver, right? And mm. so, yeah. you know, especially my, uh, well, both of them, I, I say equally, are like really attracted to strangers in, in a way that I see some other kids not so much. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. 
We have a question here from Andy on Twitter. He said, as a new parent who feels overwhelmed with work and parenthood, I often think we should be living in tribes that provide a support network, elders, other kids, etc. What are your thoughts on this? So, I mean, that's that's what you're trying to create, basically. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A support network for the kids and for you as well. Yeah, I think, you know, the, another really good book, Mothers and Others by Sarah Hurdy writes about this. She writes about the cooperative breeding hypothesis, which I think is really important. Again, looking at this from a evolutionary biology, ancestral health perspective, humans have this neat trick that can reproduce really quickly. Mm. And the way that they do that is by recruiting what Sarah Hurdy calls alloparents, which is just somebody who contributes to child rearing who is, doesn't share DNA with the offspring, right? So it could be an older sibling, it could be an unrelated hmm. person of any age. Mm -hmm. And those are critical for our evolutionary life history to be able to raise kids as quickly as, as we do. Um, other apes don't do that. Orangutans, for example, they only produce a baby every eight years because the mother plays such an important and solitary role in child rearing. Wow. So, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's part of our evolutionary life history. It's critical. You have to get alloparents involved. And that could be, you know, so for us, what does that look like right now? Well, uh, just to yesterday, actually, my seven-year-old daughter went to spend time with uh, our 80-year-old next-door neighbor. And uh, she read books with her, like helped her with her reading. She's not quite there with her reading yet. And uh, she ended up falling asleep on her couch and taking a nap, which for me, like she doesn't do that anymore. She's way too old to take a nap, right? And so that to me like suggests that she was really comfortable in the company of, of this older woman that right. we don't know that well, you know, but it's just yeah, amazing. Like I think, you know, it just shows to me that she's really securely attached, that mm -hmm. she can explore the world and feel that comfortable in the presence of a relative stranger. Mm. So it's like one example, like that woman is an incredible woman. We love her to pieces, even though we don't know her that well. And, uh, yeah, so much to give, you know, it's like sad that she's kind of in a house by herself, yeah. not passing on the wisdom that she's acquired mm. over many decades to the, the younger generation. So, yeah, I think it's really important to get these people involved in your kids' lives. We yeah. don't seem to value that as much anymore, do we? Especially in our culture, Ryan. Like, no. I know other cultures often value, we, we seem to value youth more than anything. Like, the, the most valuable person, according to the advertisements I see, is a 24-year-old, very overly fit person. Mm. Uh, that's that's what we value the most, according to the, the imagery that we're Yeah, I don't think like that. I see silver hair and I see a repository of wisdom. Like, you should ask that person. They'll probably know. Like, they've been around yeah. longer than me, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like we, we're separating ourselves from community as much as possible these days. So... You know, the the dream is to like have your own pool, to have an indoor bowling alley, to have your own little fiefdom. Am I using yeah. that word right? Yeah. <laughs> your own little fiefdom that separates you from from the community. E you know, even these like big home theaters that I see, I'm like, oh, that's cool, but like that you're missing out on that communal experience of going to the movie theater right. and and having yeah some people there watching the movie with you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like the more time goes on, uh, at least in America, the further we try to remove ourselves from from community. Mm. Why uh, is that? It's a good question, isn't it? I think we all have a slight tendency towards selfishness. I interviewed a, an anthropologist, her name is Kristen Hawkes, and she talked about that, that this dependency on the others and conversely them dependent on you mm. And then you combine that with this slight tendency towards selfishness. It's like something you can you try and shake off if you can, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there's that kind of that slight tendency 
And then given enough time and cultural evolution, mm. you get to this highly individualistic society, which is the one that we in the US live in today. Yeah. But why do you think that occurred? Why do you think we became so, because the, the idea of being an individual, it sounds like for hunter gatherers was anathema to their thriving. Yeah. But it does seem to be something that they include in their education, you know, like, I mean, Peter Grace said this in my podcast that to be called the big man, you know, we talked about the guru, the big man, like that's an insult in hunter-gatherer societies to mm. be called the big man. Mm. And, you know, they, they make fun of, of kids that act like the big man, you know, like when they make their first kill or whatever, then, you know, they sort of tease them and make fun of them because mm. they really want to beat that out of them. So it does seem like there's a, an innate human tendency towards selfishness. Yeah, mm. I mean, th I think that makes sense. You know, the the ego, the the yeah. mind. Yeah, and we're fostering that. Where in the hunter gatherer communities, they would beat it out of them. Where yeah, in America, we're fostering that that attitude. Well, I mean, even I don't know, man. I'm thinking about uh, parents who like put their kids in private schools. Like I, I have seen where parents they go out of their way to be like, Hey, this is a special school and you're a special boy or a special girl. Mm. And we're going to put you in this special school. Now, most kids don't get this opportunity. And that's just one example of many of where, you know, maybe it starts with the parents who are kind of fostering this, this idea that you are above the other children. Yeah. I, I, and, and by the way, they see that in behavior. We, we place our children on a pedestal mm -hmm. uh, unbeknownst to us or them or whatever. But what that does is it makes them look down on other people in a way when you're mm -hmm. placed on a on a pedestal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, even like growing up as a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Like I felt like I had this knowledge other people didn't. Mm. And like, I mean, I remember being four years old and I felt better than all the other kids, uh, or I guess five years old because I was in kindergarten. I felt better than all the kids in my class because, you know, they were coloring pictures of Santa Claus and the reindeer and they're all talking about Santa Claus and the reindeer. And I'm like, now, you know, Santa Claus doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> and I had this sense of pride. Like I, ha I'm in on a secret that you're not, your parents are lying to you. And then my teacher would like tell me to shut up and <laughs> put me on the hall. <laughs> but I mean, but even in that sense of, uh, you know, my, my parents trying to do the right thing. I don't think they, you know, they weren't intentionally trying to make, put me on a pedestal or make me think I was on a pedestal, but mm -hmm. because of the way that I was, raised I, I can remember being very young kind of putting myself on this pedestal yeah 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 and, and hmm. i think it, it it becomes that pedestal becomes more pronounced you know we we sort of build it up you know it's a multi-story pedestal by the time you're our age yeah and and all of a sudden you know i'm accidentally looking down on everyone yeah uh, and there's some other aspect that we already talked about control a little bit um are you still sleeping in a tent chris yeah, I got the idea from Rich Roll yeah. last time we were here. <laughs> right. It works great. He was totally right. If you live in California, you should be sleeping outside. Yeah. That did actually recently come to an end. I got a little bit scared. There was a, a wind event in Santa Cruz. It was, it was really bad. Mm. And uh, a redwood limb. So I live in amongst the redwood trees. Yes. And this redwood limb snapped off one of the trees. <sighs> and it fell and it actually hit my house. And it went all the way through the roof all the way through the ceiling of the living room. So I came into the house, I was sleeping. It's not in a tent, it was actually in the VW Eurovan I mentioned earlier, I sleep in the pop top, such good sleep in there. I came in and saw this redwood limb sticking through the ceiling. And if that had been the van, then I would have been, been done. You, know? you wouldn't and be so, here right now. So yeah, I've sort of second guessed myself on that recently, but I think I probably will be making a return to the 
to the outdoor van just as soon as I forget what would be like if a redwood limb were to come down on top of me. Yeah, or if you could find an alternate parking space or, or, or something. I mean, I don't know if there's anything nearby that wouldn't be hit by a tree potentially. No, I love it though. I love being a little bit closer to the outdoors and hearing all the different sounds like the owls and the coyotes and crickets and mm. I don't know it just feels like I'm a little bit closer to nature when I'm sleeping outdoors I definitely sleep much better and it's cooler as well mm -hmm. it's like one of the main things yeah. so is everyone in your household on your commune um, do they all sleep different uh, uh, differently it's constantly changing uh -huh. like, where people sleep mm -hmm. we've had like tents like fancy like glamping um, mm -hmm. my wife was sleeping in there with our kids for a while um, and then we've had the trailer. Sometimes people sleep in there. Um, I'm in the VW Eurobrand. It's, it's like constantly changing. Sometimes my seven-year-old daughter will uh, be in there with me in the in the Eurovan. It's just constantly in flux. Now, does mm. anyone sleep in the house in a bed? At one point, there was nobody sleeping in the house in the bed. <laughs> oh, that's but at the moment, there are. Yeah, there's too yeah. many people. Okay. There's, I feel like there's something healthy about constantly switching up. And I don't have data to back this up, but constantly switching up your sleeping environment. Mm. Because I know... Like there are studies that say uh, for you to get a good night's sleep in a new place, like you have to be there for X amount of nights. I've seen mm. different numbers. But if you're programming yourself to like sleep in different – and I would think hunters and gatherers because they're following the seasons, they're always sleeping in different, different places. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I know that stimulus control is really important. Cal Newport has talked about that as well. You know, you have this one set place. We tend to be associative, right? We learn – behaviors with a location mm -hmm. so if you have a bunch of stuff in your bedroom like a tv and whatever else you know it's like some teenagers for example seem to have like a studio apartment in their bedroom mm -hmm. and it's a disaster for sleep because you learn all these associations other than sleep with the bed oh, and it makes right. insomnia really difficult yeah. and of course i think this has become worse with the pandemic you know where everyone's locked down and now suddenly you know you're working in your bedroom or, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot more going on in, in each individual space. So trying to compartmentalize and say, okay, so when I sit in this chair, this is when I work, I think mm -hmm. is really important. And, and the Eurovan was super good for that. It's got this pop top. You know, once I'm up there, it's obvious that's what's happening. Sleep and only sleep. That's mm -hmm. the only thing that happens there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Christopher Ryan, he uh, wrote a few books. We both know him. Uh, Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death. Um, and I, I, it seems to me, though, that... They're certainly in line with what you think about, what you talk about. Mm. Why, do, why do those resonate so much with you? We, we have to be very careful here, don't we? Because there's very deliberately no prescriptive in, in Sex at Dawn. Yes, you know, right. like it, it's a pretty, hopefully, pragmatic book. You know, Some people that I know who have read it have argued that it's actually kind of moralizing. But mm. it very much resonated with me. Mm. And I know it has with uh, many other readers. And I mean, it, the kind of the, the, the reason it resonated was it's kind of, you're not broken, you know, like yeah. uh, adultery is such a common thing. And, you know, coveting your neighbor's wife is like something that we get really good at training ourselves not to do. Uh -huh. um, and I think that was why the book was so important to me was it sort of it's, it told me that actually this is a normal part of human biology and you're not broken. And, you know, mm. this is maybe everyone else is weird to go back to that acronym you know like yeah. it's it's really not you yeah mm. it, it's always seems self-evident to me and that's why I, I think civilized to death resonated with me so much more than sex at dawn oh really yeah but i uh, i i it seems self-evident to me that of course like the problem is we 
pretend to not be, we get into a relationship and all of a sudden we pretend that like we're not supposed to be attracted to other people right how absurd is that yes yeah. insane um but the couple or the throuple we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. um yes you mentioned that like yeah half the marriages end in divorce roughly and that number is coming down for multiple reasons because people are not getting married right. anymore. <laughs> exactly. that's the biggest one yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or they're getting married later and being more intentional as they get older when getting into that. So there are all those sort of contributing factors. But um, I found that that thruple, when they got into the the actual thruple, that's when it started to expose some truths. Some truths came to the surface, really, Mm -hmm. that hadn't been on the surface previous to that. Mm. And so it was introducing some additional variable. And that can happen in a marriage as well. Someone gets a new job or you move to a new city or some new random, seemingly random variable. And then all of a sudden it exposes, oh, like this in its current configuration is not working. Now, some people say, well, that must mean I have to blow up the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Or it can mean, no, we could reconfigure this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's relationship anarchy is this idea of sort of transcending from the relationship escalator, you know, like the old nursery rhyme. What is it? K-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, Marriage. then comes baby and a baby carriage, right? Like it's that you're constantly on this escalator onto the next level. And it's a one way thing, right? You can't go back. You can't have sex with someone then go back to being friends, you know. But why not? Like, again, that's like a societal norm that we don't necessarily have to conform to. Mm. I'm friends with quite a few people that I've had sex with and we just we're friends now. Right. Mm. And I, my joke before I met Bex is I'm the guy you date immediately before you meet your husband. (laughs) (laughs) I had a streak of like five women where it was just like, yep. They dumped Josh and then they went and got engaged. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened every time. We're like, we just didn't work out for whatever reason. And 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 so like, but we're still great friends as a result. Now, usually part of that comes from, I tend to get into a friendship before I get into a, a romantic relationships. Like Bex and I, for example, we were friends for a few months. Uh, I was on tour. So we were like pen pals. We got to know each other really well without um, ever being intimate with each other. Mm. And so there was something about getting to know her, which was nice, so that if our relationship did end now for whatever reason, she was like, ah, you know, I think I'm done with this. We'd still be friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our society, it's like, well, no, I'm supposed to hate you now mm. if we've broken up. You know, bro- broken up has this negative, I mean, even, even broken mm-hmm. up. Yeah. What conjures images of, oh, this is broken. Well, it's not broken. It's just I've graduated. We've graduated is, is, uh, is, is I don't know, more optimistic way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and understanding that our relationships are ever changing. You know, we, we want to fix our relationship, but nothing is, is fixed. Mm-hmm. And if we try to, to fix something, it's, you're going to struggle under, the, under that constraint, I mm. think. Mm. We got some questions here from our audience, some surprise questions here. Uh, what are the unexpected upsides and downsides of communal living for Chris? Hmm. Yeah, so upsides. Um, I definitely notice that you know some of the usual coping mechanisms completely lose their appeal. So social media being one. Why is it that people just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling? Mm. Is it that they're trying to find the others? Is that the the itch that they're trying to scratch? You know, I'm and looking for big butts usually. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it's that like longing to belong. You know, you're trying to find a friend. Like yes, that completely loses its appeal when there are actual friends there. You know, like all the time. Yeah. Like for ah. me, it's like that's definitely one. I, did, I mean, so the word unexpected is like kind of the caveat here, right? There was a lot of things I expected, but unexpected. I guess that's sort of a relative thing. It might be, mm-hmm. you know, unexpected to me, but not unexpected to somebody else what would be unexpected for a lot of people to hear about your current living situation Mm, you know the boundaries thing that you mentioned earlier like i've been really surprised how hard it is to enforce those in real life so you like what like so i mean so the blue light thing is like a a really good example actually so uh, for maybe people don't know that are listening that blue light um, suppresses the production of a hormone called melatonin and melatonin is is like the starting gun for sleep you can think Mm. of it like that so blue light comes from any of our screens, basically. Yeah, exactly. So normally during the day, it comes from the sun. Right. And then the sun goes down, and then melatonin goes up, and then you go to sleep. But you can interfere with that with the electric lighting on your ceiling or with screens or whatever. And of course, you know, like a decision I make with a light switch is like kind of a decision I make for everyone, right? Like it's not sure. necessarily mine and only my decision to make. But, you know, maybe someone else that you're living with doesn't know that and i'm like really sensitive about preaching ancestral health or anything else and mm-hmm. like i really don't want to say anything unless i absolutely have to or yeah. somebody asks you know like we work with a psychologist and he said to me once that the difference between a guest and a pest is an invitation right like if someone invites you then right. <laughs> you, sure you can talk about this stuff but you know maybe it is a boundary like sleep seems to me to be a keystone behavior for everything else like if you're not sleeping well nothing else goes well right mm-hmm. not diet choices not movement not nothing else so it's like seems like a really hard and fast thing i should have as a boundary mm. but it's really hard to say to someone you know what keep that light switch turned off like that has been a, like a really surprising thing to me yeah. how hard it is to enforce that boundary and i think it is mine to enforce i think a a boundary is a, a bit like a no trespassing sign, you know, when mm-hmm. you're trying to keep people off of your property. Mm-hmm. It's your responsibility to put up those no trespassing signs. And it's really your responsibility to try and keep people out. You know, you can't expect people to like know where the boundary is without you putting up a sign, you know. Right. So it's really on you to enforce those boundaries. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else unexpected? Um, I think the other one was really what my yoga teacher neighbor said that ab- about love. And, you know, Alison Gopnik wrote in The Philosopher Babies, another really good book, um, that we, you know, we, we, we love the children that we care for, was the first thing she said. And what she meant by that is you don't love this one, but not that one because you share DNA with them. Mm. You love them because you spent a lot of time looking after them. That's all there is mm. to it. You know, mm-hmm. so if you spend a lot of time looking after somebody else's kid, you'll love that kid, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then conversely, those kids that um, they, they love you in return. Right. Like, so mm. they just love the people who look after them. Yes. Yeah. Now, the unexpected but there is also a biological component to that as well. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Especially it's with the mother. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but, I, but do you find with your own kids versus other kids that are in, on your land, um, I mean, obviously you love your, your kids more. That word love is, I, I actually don't think you love them more, but you prefer them more right. is maybe the, the better word. Uh, I think love is, is sort of ubiquitous and, and, and most people don't even know what it means. And so... Uh, we use the word love to mean like or preference or, or, or okay. whatever. But um, when you do have a a deeper 
desire for the well-being of your children over you prioritize that over the well-being of other children's probably subconsciously and consciously yeah so i think that's just a function of having spent more time caring for them that's Mm -hmm. what i would argue yeah but so you're saying if if you lived in this situation right when they were first born and and the ever all these other kids are born at the same time or 10 other kids were born roughly the same time and you were you had some sort of similar role and in all of their upbringing, you would not prioritize the exactly. biological preference? Exactly. You don't think you would? No, absolutely Wow. Not. Well, think mm. about it. So go back to the hunter-gatherer model. They don't know which kids, I mean, they barely know that sex causes babies, right? Yes. They don't know, mm. like the idea of paternal certainty is very, very new. It's only once we had genetic testing could you even find out who the father was? Yeah. Right. And, th- and still to this day, they do these large studies, like the sort of who's your daddy study, you know, uh-huh. where they take a bunch of people living in a, a, like an apartment complex and they just do DNA testing and then see, oh, is the person you think is your father actually your father? Right. And then, no, about mm. 20 to 30% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and so, you know, you, you don't even, what difference does it make? Like yeah. paternal certainty has probably done a lot of damage to children, if anything. I, right. I, I agree with yeah. that. What difference does it make in our society? We've been told this idea has been propagated mm. that um, you, especially as a man, and I think it's absurd. As a man, you're, you want to spread your seed and carry on your lineage and mm. all that. How dumb is I mean, it, it's, it's so silly because yeah. like, as soon as I'm dead, none of it's going to matter to me. Why do I care about mm. like... Um, uh, continuing the bloodline. Yeah. What does that even mean? They have my same DNA. I don't. I can't even explain DNA to you. Why would I even like? Yeah. Why am I so obsessed with this? Right. Yeah. And I think it's much more culture than it is biology. Mm-hmm. The the obsession of my child takes priority over the other children in the community. Mm-hmm. And you, it seems to be that you are. You're saying yeah. It's almost completely societal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just look at. I mean, I have a three-year-old boy and he's got blonde hair and chocolate brown eyes and he's completely adorable, but so is every white Caucasian baby looks exactly the same. Like yeah. my wife almost jokes that you could come home with the wrong one. Like they all look the same to me. And <laughs> to be clear, our, the, our British guest here is not saying that white Caucasian babies are the cute babies. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify. Just to clarify, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all adorable. They make them adorable for a reason, mm. right? But what I'm saying is like, I'm not sure I'd be able to tell which one was mine. Yeah. You know, unless mm. I had a DNA test, they all look the same to me. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, oh, that's fascinating. I mean, but there are some times where you see someone, they're the spitting image, especially yeah. as they start to reach you know, uh, pubescence and, and right. or they're post-pubescent. They really start to look like their, their parents. But even kids quite often can look a lot like their parent, like one parent or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and so, so I don't know. It seems to me that there probably is some sort of biological imperative. Maybe it's it's mostly maternal, mm. but it seems I that mean, you can't. Yeah, exactly. You almost know who the mum is. Like that's that that's pretty obvious, right? Mm. But I mean, another thing I find fascinating in, in hunter gatherer bands is this idea of pardable paternity, and and this is the is the, the idea that. Um, in order to make a baby, you need the semen from more than one man. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And, and this is like popped up in independently in different populations 
without them having contact with each other. Like, right. They believe in order to make a baby, you have to have sex with w more than one man. And in order to inherit the attributes of that man, mm -hmm. you have to have sex with him, right? And so, you know, if you want this guy because he's tall and this guy because he's good at, fit, you know, whatever it is, like it's so, hmm. they, they, they don't even think, you, they think that you need more than one man to make a baby. Like that's, so, mm. our, you know, our, our modern understanding of, of genetics is, mm -hmm. has really changed everything. Yeah. Right. And so, like, what I find fascinating about that is that's not factually true, obviously. Yeah. In fact, you can have sex with 10 men. You're not, you, the baby's not going to get the characteristics of nine of them. It's, but there's a deeper truth there about, well, if those 10 men are all playing some role in their upbringing, then they are, by nurture, going to get a lot of those attributes you know, that those men exhibit, right? Mm. Completely agree. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, so the unexpected thing, you know, I was going to finish that thought, was that, so, so you love the children that you care for and the children that you care for love you. But the, the other really important thing, I think, is that you end up loving the people who care for your children. Mm. And so if you spend a lot of time with someone and they're looking after your children, I think there's a really good chance that you'll fall in love with them too. Mm. Uh, and th this again is f from Gopnik. And you know that, that- Why is that, do you think? So it allows childhood to take place. So that bond between you allows the child a carefree existence so they can play and learn how to be a human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an evolutionary advantage. I mean, that's always the answer, right? It's like, yeah. you know, humans that did this were slightly more successful at reproducing than humans that did not. And that's why it exists. Like there's no better explanation than that. That's the answer. It's uh, but it's like answer. an unexpected gotcha, I think. If you're spending a lot of time living with people who are caring for your children, I think there's a really good chance you'll fall in love with them. Mm. Wow. Or if you strongly dislike them, then you end up getting out of that. Yeah. <laughs> it either So it's, it, 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 it'll bifurcate. It goes either like, oh, this is not the right pairing, right? Mm. Which you've experienced. This is not the right pairing. Or, wow, this is great and I'm falling in love with you in you know, whatever way. It could be intimate, you know, like I uh, love Ryan, not in a, in a, a sexual way. Whatever that I'm aware of yet, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance, um, but um, oh, I don't know where the, where the hell I was going with that. And we got a bunch more surprise <laughs> questions here, so let's uh, yeah. let's ask uh, Zane's question here. Is the revised American dream to form a community to build a society which has much less inequality and more fairness, in which everybody has a chance? and that is responsible towards the planet and our ecosystem. Wow, that's a whole lot there. That is. I, I don't like the word society or responsible uh, because I think... I don't like American dream either. Uh, well, right. right. <laughs> so, so we can cross out some words here. Yeah. Maybe we can talk a bit about inequality and fairness with respect to your current living situation. Has, has anything come up there uh, so far? You know, one thing that I would be aware of is this, actually I got this from Jessica Fern, this idea of um, justice jealousy, you know? So mm. when you start developing a relationship with someone other than your primary partner, say, say you open up your marriage and you start a relationship with a new partner, then sometimes the original partner might get jealous because you're doing something with the new person that you would never do with them. Right, yeah. and that could be something sexual, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. And so she coined this term that I really like, justice jealousy. You know, okay. like, why do you never do that with me? What the yeah, heck, yeah, you know? Um, Can you give me an example? 
Well, like think of a sexual act that you were like not into with your partner and then you go, you're with another woman and then, and then suddenly, you, you know, you're, you're into that, you know, like that can make the original person kind of not, maybe jealous, angry. I'm not sure. One yeah. of those negative emotions. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of where this would apply outside of, I understand the, the sexual side of things and understand the jealousy that creeps up under that. But I can also see the jealousy creeping up in all these other ways that are non-sexual. Like, mm you know, how come you never take me out to exactly. pic picnic or exactly. whatever, right? Like the, there are other, like, I totally understand the jealousy on the, the sex side of things, but like mm. I can also see uh, people getting jealous over just about yeah. anything. Why do you go on walks more with them than you do with me? It exactly. could, yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. yeah. So so the what was the term for that? Justice and Justice jealousy. Jealousy, yeah. Justice jealousy. Huh. Hmm. Okay. So um, when we're thinking about fairness, uh, we're thinking about equality. It's not about doing the same thing with the same partner. Right. That's not fairness or equality. Because part of that has to do with preferences, right? Yeah. I mean, this, so the thing I always talk about with Julie, my wife, is like the difference between equality and equitable, right? Okay. So what we don't, when we divide our responsibilities, we're not doing the same thing, but half the time mm. or right. like, you wash our, so it's it's equitable in that we're performing different tasks, and hopefully the com combination of the two is of of equal value. But they're not exactly the same. If that makes sense, it does. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and also I found that it's important to not keep a ledger of those tasks. Yeah, right. yeah even a mental ledger of it because. Um, because then yeah, it's just not useful. It's not useful if I'm like, well, you know, I did 48% or 40, 52% of the work this, this month and you yeah. did 48. And so you have to make up that 4% delta next month. Right, um, right. I, I find that when we start measuring the, these aspects of the relationship, it leads to a lot of discontent. Mm -hmm. mm. Have you experienced any discontent in your current arrangement? I mean, so far it's been really good, apart from the things I've already mentioned. Okay. Mm. I don't think so, no. I think it's been all, honestly, it's been all to the good. Yeah. Mm. I mean, a huge upside, I mean, going back to sex at dawn is like what happens to sexual desire when in, in monogamy? Like, I think we're very drawn towards novelty, especially men. Yes. And, mm. um, you know, that can really kill desire. Mm -hmm. And just I even being like a theoretical thing, like you've discussed with your wife, actually, we're going to have an open relationship and it's possible that you could have other partners. Just that possibility inc massively increases sexual desire mm -hmm. in our experience. And then also in talking to other people as well. Yeah. And so it can really rekindle um, a sex drive, I think. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I found that, again, going back to the time apart, for me, Bex, that, that, like, it's still the best sex of my life just with the two of us and it would not be the same if we were spending every single day together mm. and, and there's something about maybe there's like a a variety that is or or I don't know, limited access in a way like yeah. that's the same the same sort of that's the, that's the desire of other people right we're often desiring the things to which we don't have access well there's that old cliche of you know absence makes the heart grow fonder yeah. it's a cliche for a reason yeah i still yeah. think there's something really special about novelty and, and it kind of makes sense again from an evolutionary biology perspective that you'd be drawn towards novelty because mm. it's like just i mean what you said about spreading a seed far and wide right mm -hmm. like what if 
I mean, imagine if you were somehow separated from your sister and then reunited later on and you didn't know, like there's no, like there was no way for you to know, right? There's no yeah. genealogy or anything like that. And you, you make a bunch of dud babies with your sister, like that would be really bad, right? And so right, right. you can minimize the risk of that by having sex with as many different people as you possibly can, right? <laughs> right, right. Back this is why I love Asians. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's why I have this Asian fetish. <laughs> no, 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 I do not have an Asian fetish. I'm no, joking. Well, you have a Mariah fetish. It yeah, happens right. to be Asian. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, well, this is fascinating because Bex does look like my sister. And we've actually had this conversation <laughs> where it's like, okay, so say we found out that we were brother and sister, twin mm. brother and sister, separated at birth. Mm. How would that change our relationship? Yeah. Yeah, it's like you get into this. Well, where does morality come from? Yeah, so yeah, well, I don't believe in morality. So like that, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm off the hook there, right? I, it's not that I don't believe in, in all. I think there are some immoral things, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't believe in like moralizing everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like yeah, if if you were beating my daughter, then yeah, that's immoral, and and we're gonna have a problem, right? But like, there's if if no one else is harmed, and so like her and I don't plan on having more kids together. Mm -hmm. So what's the problem? Yeah, what would the problem this be? This is actually a question mm. posed in Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. Uh -huh. And most people really get their panties in a bunch about it. But you're right. If no babies are made, then what's the problem? There isn't a problem. Yeah, it's, it's an uncomfortable It's really, I, mean, sure. just fe I feel, oh. Yeah, yeah, it would be so But that's a learned strange. thing, right? Like that's, it is. Yeah. Huh. Although, like, do you have siblings? I do. Okay, so can you imagine? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's my point. Like, in the, uh, but Chris, that's a just, learned thing. I, just because it's learned doesn't mean it's not real, right? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. my god. Or, or just because it's not real doesn't mean that it's not real, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's very real to me, mm -hmm. uh, uh, even though like there is no you know, real consequence as long as you don't plan on having babies together. Mm -hmm. We have more questions here. Love gone global. <laughs> How do we help live-in seniors we're caring for who can't let go of stuff? So, yeah, Chris, you mentioned earlier about wisdom. Uh, mm. We often take for granted the, the, the wisest people in our society, uh, that we've cast them off. We, even, we have, like, these centers full of wise people. Yeah. And it's they've, really sad, isn't it's it? It's like these little islands that mm. aren't surrounded by water. Yeah. A and um, yeah, it's, you, you're right. It is sad. Uh, and, and so I think not always. I guess I have to. You know, I think probably a lot of people are happy in nursing homes. It's not, but I, for me, I like a lot often. Mm -hmm. it's, my, it's my worst nightmare. It's like ending up in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. See, I, I'm not that afraid of it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, because you'd have a room to yourself. That, that's what I'm like. That's right. I'm yeah. by myself right. most of the time. Right. As long as you but like, a living roommate. I, I like old people, and so like I, I can imagine like, yeah, just going out to the room, the the uh, you know <laughs> the rec room and. Yeah. Beating some people in ping pong. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like, and then going back and retreating to my room for yeah. twenty three hours. Right, and mm. and I'd be fine. Uh, and so, but yeah, I I do see sadness there. In fact, uh, not like you said, not all, all of them. But um, there's, I don't know. It, what's sad is like, it almost feels as it's forced aloneness, and they don't have people to talk to. But also, they don't have like we people under 60 don't mm. seek out those people mm -hmm. 
And uh, I don't know. I, anyway, back to, to Love Gone Global's question. Yeah. How do we help the seniors? that? So, so you're actually doing something different from that. You have a live-in senior you're caring for, and that person's struggling to let go of some of their you know, sentimental items, mm. right? And so, I mean, I could talk about the sentimental things. Like, if they don't want to get rid of them, don't try to force someone to right. get rid of something. As right? long as they're not crossing boundaries. I mean, if you have a live-in senior where, you know, their their stuff is crossing certain boundaries and creating a uncomfortable situation or even, you know, beyond that, like an unlivable situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be boundaries set up, but yeah. yeah, we're not in the business of talking people into getting rid of stuff. No, but even further than that, we're not in the business of like telling people how to talk other people <laughs> into getting rid of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have any any insights on this, Chris? No, nothing beyond what I've already said. You know, like I see these people as rep- a repository of wisdom, and I really want to bring them into our lives more. You know, mm, in the yeah. same way as the the older kids are the scaffolding that help the younger kids up. Are the old is that true throughout our lifespan? You know, where the the people with the silver hair are the scaffolding that help us up to the next level. Mm. I like to think so. I think quite often our children help us up to the next level too. They yeah, are, maybe they, because they haven't been so ruined by society yet that they have some some sort of evolutionary wisdom that we beat out of them by age, what, seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there, right? Yes. Uh, mm. And we, we deprogram their nature, and, um, and all mm. of a sudden, we then spend all of our 20s, 30s, and 40s like, trying to uh, deprogram ourselves because of the programming that we were, we were mm-hmm we were given by our, mm-hmm. our parents and our society. Mm. I, I think about the, the stuff here though, the, uh, a, a senior citizen who's dealing with, who, who has too much stuff, right? That, that they can't let go of, too much in vocal quotes there. But that, that senior who is, are they struggling with it or are they contented with it? Right. Mm. And so if they're looking for help, then great. You can help them by set, setting up some very basic boundaries that we often talk about with like the minimalist rule book and you can expand those boundaries so they're not so strict for that person right if so if they feel like they're drowning in stuff they're complaining about it then yes of course you can shed some light on some time-tested minimalist principles for them but if they're completely contented and they're not harming anyone else by having a little excess stuff then i don't see why we would want to talk them out of that anyway Mm -hmm. you know it's not, it, this isn't about proselytizing. I, I get the sense from Chris, you know, he's not saying that everyone should live in a communal situation. It sounds like, if anything, you're saying it may be the ancestral way to live. Mm. It's just, which is just a, an idea, right? It's just a hypothesis that I can then go ahead and, and, and test. But yeah, I think you're right. It's rather than saying this is the way it should be done, yeah. or this is right, or this is wrong, it's moving more towards. Like, is this helpful? Is, is this working for me? What is my value system? Am I moving towards something I value or am I moving away from? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that way of thinking has, has been very helpful for me at least. And it's, it's, it's not mine, it's from acceptance and commitment therapy. You know, this idea mm-hmm. of values guided actions. There's worksheets that you can do to see if, and of course James Clear has a fantastic book, Atomic Habits, where he talks about this. You know, like every mm-hmm. action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. Right. It's that same sort of way of thinking. Like, is this helpful or not? Yeah. yeah. I think quite often we, we, whenever we get in one of those one of, one of those situations where we are 
unhappy. We're discontented with the way things are. We often run away from that situation as opposed to determining what is the thing I should run toward or even mm -hmm. walk toward. Uh, a, a, because the running away from the thing, we often will then run away to the thing that is just is equally inappropriate for mm -hmm. us, right? It's mm -hmm. like, uh, thank God I didn't stumble across Nexium or one of these other cults um, when I first was running away from the corporate world, right? Mm. I, I, I eventually walked toward the sort of more intentional life with, with minimalism, but I could see, had I just wanted to run away from that old life, you just accept the next thing that's put, mm. next compelling thing that is put in front of you. Yeah. It's like a barracuda, right? The barracuda in the water, they just throw a shiny object uh, near the, the surface of the water and they all sort of attack it, right? Mm. We humans are, are the same way with, uh, with relationships, with material possessions, et cetera. Yeah. You look like you want to say something, Chris. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, Stephen Chamberlain has a question for us. I jumped in an airstream after having led a fairly conventional life in the military until age 50. I rolled out in March 2020 right into the pandemic. I, I am now a nomad. All that I own is in the airstream. Can you guys talk about examples of the nomadic life? Have you heard about this uh, indie film, Nomad Nomadland? Yeah, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet either. Here it's really good. But I, it's funny because like, I, I can think of mutual friends that you and I have, Josh, at least three that their dream is to like build out a bus or a van mm -hmm. and travel around. And then I have friends of mine who are not mutual between us. I can think of at least another three or four mm -hmm. who are doing this. It seems to be like the, um, like the in vogue thing to do. I feel like we have a lot of sort of peripatetic nomadic friends. Um, or semi-nomadic, yeah. you know. How is how does a, a nomadic life differ from what Chris is doing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Like I said, you're a static nomad is the way I sort of look at <laughs> it. Static nomad. <laughs> I really should move on by now. You know, yeah. Someone's going to move me along. <laughs> it does appeal to me greatly, actually, this the yeah, van me too. lifestyle. It's me like too. pretty yeah. awesome. I mean, we've done it a little bit. You know, like I said, we got evacuated by the fire. We end up leaving in our Eurovan with uh, zero possessions. And mm -hmm. it's really fun to pull into an, you know, an RV place and meet a bunch of people who you know new pe new friends every day right it's mm -hmm. like it's great yeah. i th i think it's in vogue because it's like the idea of going out and creating a lot of unique experiences mm -hmm. i mean i you know i've been in the united states lived here for my whole life i still haven't been to the grand canyon yeah. I you know i haven't been to uh the salt flats i haven't been to i mean there's a lot of like pet the petrified forest uh there's a lot of things i haven't done and like Mariah and I, we fantasize about getting into a van mm -hmm. uh, or an airstream mm -hmm. and like driving around and just kind of creating these these adventures. But I think about my grand grandfather and grandmother. My grandfather, uh, he, my oma and opa. Mm -hmm. uh, my opa just passed away a couple years ago. But uh, they had a camper. They didn't drive around and go from like place to place. But like. Um, in the sense that that's how they lived their whole year. But like when it got really hot in Florida, they would take their camper and they would drive from Florida to New York and they would, you know, take a week to get to New York. Yeah. And then they'd get to my aunt's house in upstate New York and they would camp out there. You saw their camper actually, mm -hmm. yeah, when we were traveling uh, on our book tour. But yeah, it's it's it does seem like this is a very uh it's like 
it used to be an uh, an elderly retired person thing to do, but now it is the people. Yeah, all ages are doing it now. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, I don't. I don't personally understand the appeal. I don't like <laughs> experiences. Josh hates. <laughs> Josh hates camping. He hates fun. <laughs> I hate ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave me alone. <laughs> no, I. Uh, I actually, I, I get that. Uh, I, and I really admire folks who were doing this earlier because, as you said, there was an expectation like, well, this is for people who are above 65 years old and now mm-hmm. you're ready to start living once you've retired. And it's like, yeah. well, no, if I'm not especially I think that if anything, the pandemic, as Stephen has illuminated here, uh, the pandemic has has illuminated something. And that something is that, oh, a lot of us can do work from just about anywhere. Right. Yeah especially when it involves screens or whatever. Now, th- not everyone has that luxury. You know, my, my brother works in a meat packing plant, right? He can't do that remotely. Mm. He can't work at a meat packing plant from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't have a nomadic lifestyle while doing that, right? Right. And so totally, totally get that that's not possible for everyone, but for some people they're realizing like, oh, I, I don't have to be tied to New York City or to Cincinnati or wherever. Mm-hmm. I can have a home base and I can travel or I can just travel perpetually and I don't have to have a home base at all. Yeah. I think that's appealing to a lot of people. Not, it's not appealing at all to me <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, but I like having a, a house and an address and, and, uh, but I totally understand that people want to have adventures and if so, it seems like it'd be a great way to do it. What's preventing you from doing that right now? That's a really good question. I mean, what does, what prevents anyone from changing? It's a really good question. I have desire, no idea. Deep desire. That's the only answer. Yeah, there's there's really nothing holding us where we are in in Santa Cruz at all. I mean, it, with your community of people, though, you would have to have like yeah. a caravan, right? So yeah, you'd so be traveling around. Things, yeah, exactly. So that's the thing that you give up is the individual freedom that mm. you can't just get up and go somewhere mm. without interfering with other people's lives. By but the way, definitely that, that, that's me. true of anything besides long-term singlehood, right? Mm. So, so even if you're just in a partner, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend partnership, right? Or a throuple or whatever, right. you lose the individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there is a, a loss of, of freedom. Depending on how you value and prioritize freedom, uh, I think that you know, singlehood, which is actually someone else's question here, Carol's question said, yeah. would you please talk about long-term singlehood? Being alone isn't the same thing as being lonely. Right. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also, like, understanding long-term singlehood works really well for someone who highly values freedom above other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on long-term singlehood? Uh, y- yeah, I think she makes an important point that just because you're surrounded by people doesn't mean that you feel like part of a group of friends. Right. Yes. And uh, certainly you can be lonely. I'm thinking about London. You know, I used to live in London and you'd ride the London Underground to work and you'd be surrounded by all these people, but you wouldn't make eye contact. That was like the last thing you would do on the London Underground, right? It's like frowned yeah, upon yeah. almost. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so you can definitely be lonely and surrounded by, by people. Um, the worst thing in the world, I think, is to be surrounded by people and feel that are supposed to be your support group. And, and, and feel lonely, right? So yeah. in particular, your social support, imagine you've got kids and these people are supposed to be helping you with child rearing and caregiving and they're not pulling their weight and you feel isolated from them. That's the worst thing in the world, I think. Yeah, yeah. well, because you also feel obligated to be around that person to, yeah. to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like, if it's the person on the London Underground, 
you don't yeah, feel obligated. You, yeah. you can literally walk away. It's not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the more we become tethered with other people, uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm fairly individualistic, mm -hmm. and I just I, I happen to recognize that, that in in me, but also recognize the value of being around other people and being friends with other people. It's the reason I don't go live in a cave. Yeah. Um, with air conditioning and a bed and an mm -hmm. address. Well, you know, I always thought it was interesting how you f you know you feel like L.A. is your spot. Yes. Because it is one of you know the most populated cities in the country. Yeah, second most. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I guess I've experienced this other uh, with others. Like I don't know. I think of like some mentees I've had, and they are like you. They are. Uh, like to be alone but they love living in a big city because it's like they can be around people but still be left alone because that's really what it's not about being alone as much as it is about being left alone i feel like when, when i talk about ambient people i talk about really what i'm talking about is the potential for interaction mm. and it's the reason i don't generally like big cities la is different from any other big city in my experience for two reasons one is the weather is is amazing so like i highly prioritize walking in the sun that's mm -hmm. like in my top five list of and so that that makes it difficult for me to live somewhere with winter for example right because especially you know somewhere it's cloudy in the winter which is a lot of this country right mm -hmm. or england oh, the uk for sure. is the worst yeah. yeah you know like go to work in the dark and you get home and it's dark it's like you never see daylight <laughs> in the winter yeah. yeah and even if you go oh. out for lunch it's cloudy right yeah. and so you're not even getting a whole lot of sun surrounded by tall buildings so you're probably going to be in the shade no matter what <sighs> yeah I, and so th th that's different here in los angeles mm -hmm. for sure uh, it feels like a bunch of small cities sort of just crammed right next to each other yeah, yeah. where's the city center i'm trying to find the city center there isn't that, that's the whole thing yeah. right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> downtown is you know right. six miles that way but like that's not the center at all it's way way far east of everything that's mm -hmm. it's like yeah. the it, it, downtown la is like this a suburb of la right strangely yeah and and so it's just a bunch of different cities that happen to be you know sort of scrunched together and there's 12 million people here so you have access to a lot of things without being on top of each other right. and so there's a, a lot of there's enough space now it makes it really difficult because it might take you two hours to drive somewhere that's mm. six miles away when there's bad traffic and so yeah there are obvious downsides to that um where's they going with the ambient people thing though that, that having that potential for interaction is important to me but not being obligated to interact with those mm. people mm -hmm. and in fact that's what makes it more it, like here's a here's an example so if i wanted to go write for our book our next book right mm -hmm. i wanted to go write a chapter it'd be way easier for me to go do that in a coffee shop than if i were to do it here with you all mm -hmm. even though and it's because i trust and respect you all and I respect you so much that I want to be able to give you my attention, mm -hmm. but I can't give you my attention if I've given this thing attention. Right. The people in the coffee shop, I would ra I don't feel obligated to give them my attention. Mm. And so I, I'm sure that has to come up sometimes, right? With, with your living situation, there, there not there a sense of obligation to the other people in your tribe? Um, yeah, but I think you can still, I just delineate it by time. You know, I'm on now, I'm working, I've got my noise cancelling headphones on, writing code, whatever. Yes. And then when I'm off, I hope I'm off. Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not, you know, idly scrolling on a phone or 
paying attention to something else. And this, by the way, is like super important for secure attachment is that the kid knows that you're both available, meaning you're there, but you're also responsive, you know, like when something happens, you respond to it. And then the final thing is the attunement, you're actually attuned to the child's emotional state. So I hope that even though I don't have, you know, a separate space to go off and, and do work, that I'm, I'm still able to create those compartments and, and be, you know, like fully present when I'm, when I'm there and yeah. present. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a hard thing because you can't prescribe presence, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. Um, that's like in basketball when, when you're like at a free throw line and you're thinking, don't miss it, don't miss it, don't <laughs> miss it. Don't, and, and <laughs> it's like being present, be present, be present, be present. It oh doesn't no, my yeah. mind has wandered. Yeah, what's yeah. that? Uh, oh no, my mind has just wandered. Right, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so long-term singlehood, uh, it doesn't seem that we've evolved that way, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I use that term obligate gregarious, right? I think that's true of the ancestral condition, but yeah, perhaps you're a sort of superhuman that you've evolved beyond that and you're fine with being single forever and that's what you value. And, and so you are living consistently with your values and there's yeah, no problem with that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, but it's not, I don't think it's about superhuman or evolution. I mean, if in our society, it feels like a defect. I don't, I don't think of it that way. Mm. But um, when I look at any you know, mystic or enlightened person or even just, seekers they tend to spend l or very creative people even they spend dis your cal newport fan think about how all the people he writes about what's the commonality large swaths of time and solitude mm -hmm. alone time daily i mean have you read mason curry's book um the daily rituals book oh i haven't I will yeah now. um and so it's uh wow book that he hasn't read <laughs> um uh, but it's basically it documents, I think, 160 different creative people and their daily rituals. Mm. And there are three commonalities that I see on all 160 people. Some sort of stimulant, either coffee or alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> or cocaine. Yeah, when it comes to yeah, Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson yeah. yeah, his routine's wild. Uh, lots of uh, walking. I think mm. it was all but two people in there ha didn't have a regular daily walk or, or some sort of ruminative, ruminative uh, rumination time. Mm -hmm. Um, and the third thing was they, they spent a lot of time alone. Now it could be on mm. those walks or it could be creating music or writing or whatever the thing is that they're creating. But most of those things are done alone. Mm. Very rarely does a, you don't make art by committee. You don't make masterpieces in a conference room. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way, right? Mm -hmm. It's always a person who does something. Mm -hmm. Now, they're going to be affected likely by their society, but even thinking about de deep thinkers, right? Whether it's not just the Buddha, but you, you can look at anyone. Even Osho, like spending many, many years alone. Yeah. Um, there, there's something about There's something about that time that, I'm afraid that, I don't know. It, it seems to me that we need it. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. It's just a very conscious choice for me. You know, my, my son in particular, he's just turned three. And I mean, he's just completely delightful. Do you know, there's this stage that toddlers go through where they have uh, chubby cheeks. They're not a baby, but they have chubby cheeks and funny pronunciation. Yes. Mm. And it's just completely adorable. And <laughs> I wouldn't want to miss one minute of it. And it's just like gone. Like I know this from my daughter who's now seven. Yeah. Mm. Like it goes and then yeah. there are big kids, you know, and it's yeah. just never the same again. 
And yeah. so I don't want to miss like one minute of that, you know? Mm. So it's like a conscious choice. I can go back to, you know, deep work later, write code. I'll still be able to write code when I'm 55, right? Who cares? You know, I'll do it then. Right, but there, there are some professions where that's not possible too, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, you're a cyclist. Yeah. And, and you can cycle when you're 55, but if you wanted to be, you know, a world-class right, competitive yeah, cyclist, well, you need lots of steroids and <laughs> alone time, apparently. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so, so there are pr even pursuits like that, though. The, the Lance Armstrongs of the world, right? The uh, LeBron James, whomever. Uh, even in supposed team sports, there's no team. Mm -hmm. It's not really a team. It's individuals being hyper excellent in an individual role mm -hmm. coming together at the same time. Mm -hmm. Basketball, I think, is the best example of this. Football, uh, American football mm -hmm. could also be uh, a, a solid example. But mm -hmm. it seems very much like a team is required. But yes. you look at football and it's like, well, but you also realize the role of an individual that an individual plays, like a, a Tom Brady, an excellent individual. Yeah. Like, there's no question that, that excellence is individual mm -hmm. you know it's in you bring up tom brady and that super bowl that he just won mm -hmm. mahomes played a better game i mean he had two interceptions yes but as far as like statistics go i mean just to show that like i think mahomes probably was a better quarterback mm -hmm. that game mm -hmm. or yeah um but it was the team that won that super bowl for tampa bay yeah oh, I, i'm i'm saying what i'm saying though is it wasn't the team it was 12 individual contributors right. at a time. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, right. More than it was the, the quote-unquote team. Right, 100%, right? yeah. And, and so being able to – and so maybe – if how do we map that onto a communal living situation is there is still something about respecting the individuality mm. of each person. Can we agree on that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, you know, I've, we've toyed around a lot with, like, what would be the ideal building configuration. And I, I think we've come to the conclusion that what would be good is – you know, a big communal space with a kitchen and maybe other shared things in there. Like, so for example, if you, maybe you're into carpentry and there's like some special table saw or something that costs thousands of dollars that you couldn't justify having by yourself, but mm. you could have as a shared resource. And then maybe that would be, and other things like, imagine sewing, you know, my, there's all these like fancy sewing machines that do all this stuff that my wife couldn't justify having on her own, but maybe she could share that with the community and that would be in the big um, communal house. Right. And then you have like a constellation of tiny homes or something ar around that. So you've still got your space that you can retire away to should you want that solitude or isolation, whatever you choose to call it, and, and to be able to get away from the chaos rather than just being stuck in the big house all the time. We've thought about that. And, and maybe that is doable. Maybe we can go find a, a big house on a, on a lot, big lot somewhere and put in some, some tiny homes or something. But mm -hmm. I know we thought about it and then 2020 just didn't seem like the year to... <laughs> <laughs> to try that right and, and, and so the other thing that we thought about is like well how would you kickstart this it's a really hard problem like no one's gonna sell the house and move to this new uh you know installation mm. and i think you do it like a timeshare you know where mm. um you could come and spend maybe one day a week or two days a month whatever it is and sort of get the feel of it like do i like this is this good or not and then if you like it then you can spend more time there and maybe you don't like it at all and you just sell your timeshare and somebody else moves in mm. right we're thinking about that but yeah. Yeah, 2020 just wasn't the year to try that. So maybe mm. 2021. I'm not even sure about 2021. Maybe it's still a couple of years away. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. The Somehow 
simultaneously respecting the individual. And I think the way we do that is by understanding boundaries, not just having our own, but understanding what other people, working to have a deep understanding of other people's boundaries. That way you can respect them. Because if you don't know what they are, then you're accidentally going to trample over those boundaries mm -hmm. all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Just like uh, running into a, a room with the lights turned off. I'm going to just bump my... <laughs> Yeah, face and arms and legs on everything, right? You do that with the lights on. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so uh, I think the same thing could happen. We can stub our toes metaphorically in the relationship as well if we don't have the, the lights on yeah. uh, that help us see those, those boundaries. We, uh, we've covered a lot today. Chris, what, what, else, what else would you like to cover before we close up? Is there anything that makes sense to talk about you feel like we haven't gotten to today? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm really interested, people listening, to get their feedback and thoughts and ideas. Okay. I'm sure there are things that I haven't thought of that people are thinking about, so I'd love to hear from them. Yeah. Well, you can send him an email, chris at nourishbalancethrive.com. You, you can also comment on Patreon as well if you have uh, some thoughts. Chris, thanks for being here today, brother. Well, thank you for inviting so me. Much, I man. really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, nice you. All right, y'all. Love people use things. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much, patrons. Don Minimalists.